Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Escape Act. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we last spoke? I've been very good, thank you. All cheered up by the results on Sunday, which I needed after having to sit through the absolute drivel that was the Coming to America sequel. I needed I needed something to cheer me up, and I'm sure Carl will agree with me on that, our, our absent friend. Uh, I needed something to pick me up from the week from watching that dirge, so thankfully Fulham were able to provide that. Okay, we won't talk about moving to America, whether it's called Coming to America, that's it. What we all talk about is lots of football. And to help us out, of course, is Palace fan Max. Max, I hope all is well this past week. I have a feeling it might not be. Uh, actually, everything's really great oh, yeah. um, with me. You know, the sun is shining, everything's fantastic. Just don't mention the football. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a bit of an issue. We, we will skirt around it at some point. But before we do, let's do the social media bits. Of course, Carl has failed a fitness test, unfortunately, this week. So, Carl, if you are listening... Get well soon, buddy, and hopefully you'll be back in the fold next week. Of course, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud, Audioboom and Spotify. There's two content partners I need to mention. First up, if you want some tips and predictions for your betting needs, simply go to betting.com and check out my match previews. If you want some opinion and thought pieces, you can check them out on a near daily basis at nowsport.com. Plus, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast. Simply put a dot between the R and the E. Once you do that, you unlock 10, yes, 10 podcast platforms for you to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, it's time to go 
live. And where should we go first? We must go to Anfield. And Matthew, after the disappointment of Thursday night's pod derby, Mario Lamina says, don't worry, lads, I've got this one covered. What a result, and more importantly, what a performance. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, does, it, it does feel like one of those things, and the media have sort of tried to split themselves up, but this was, you know, oh, was it Liverpool being bad, or was it Fulham being good? I think this one more does lean, and this, this is completely being unbiased, even in my situation. I think this does come from Fulham being good. You know, Liverpool did have their chances, but the fact that we managed to deal with it in such a way... You know, I think there was only really 10 minutes of the game throughout the whole 90 minutes where I felt the Liverpool were actually, oh, they they could get something out of this. The rest of the game, Fulham were in complete control. And, you know, con- contrast that to where we've been at various points of the season, you know, against, you know, the, the bigger teams of the league. It, it's It was a real nice surprise to show that we managed to turn it around. Obviously, the fight for survival is there's still a long way to go. Um, you can make the argument it's it's still within our hands because of that game against Newcastle that comes up on the final day that everyone points to. But yeah, just overall, absolutely fantastic. You, you, know, you can't. There wasn't a single player that put a foot wrong that day. Which really is exactly what you need when you're going to Anfield. You know, a damaged champions team or not, you've still got to be on it. But Max, it's another defeat for Liverpool. You know, this is more than a blip. It's arguably more than a trend. This is a massive wobble. So when you look at the lineup. Do you think Jurgen Klopp has underestimated Fulham and perhaps taken his eye off the Premier League with the focus now being on the Champions League? Um, you know what? I think so. I think so. And, and as um, as Matthew said, the, the the focus needs to be on on Fulham because they were absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I mean, Liverpool weren't amazing, but they that's been the case for a number of weeks. They've obviously lost six home games in a row now. And so, yeah, Fulham have have shown that, you know, they've, they've beaten um, Everton, you know, they drew with West Ham. Should have beaten Palace when they played the week before, and and they you know lost narrowly to Chelsea and United. So they've been threatening a, a really big result like that for quite a long time. It's not come completely out of the blue, and they were fantastic. Um, with regards to Liverpool and Klopp, I don't think he underestimated the opposition so much. I don't think it was complacency. Um, I think he really needed to make uh, a statement in terms of his team, um, given how bad they'd been um, previously. And they were really, really shocking in defence. And, you know, was I expecting to see Nico Williams, Reese Williams and Phillips as three quarters of the back line? No, I wasn't. But, you know, Trent has been pretty poor recently. Obviously, Fabinho and Henderson and Kabak have been playing quite a lot recently, obviously covering the, the, the absent injured centre-backs. And so I can understand why he did it, to try and provoke a reaction from them. You know, Williams and Williams and... Phillips have been slightly on the edge of the team. You know, they've got a point to prove, young and hungry. And I guess that was an opportunity for them to show that they were capable of playing at Premier League level. It's not an opportunity that they took. But, uh, yeah, while I don't think we can accuse Klopp of complacency, I definitely think there was an element of, as well as wanting a reaction and, you know, making some changes to try and um, to try and spark his team into life, I think there was also an element of uh, saving his team for the Champions League because the Premier League is gone for Liverpool. It's gone for any team other than City, basically, but it's definitely gone for Liverpool. Whereas they could still mount a challenge in the Champions League. And if they win the Champions League or, you know, if they do well in that tournament and and get top four, then I think given the injuries they've had, it would be a reasonable season um, for Klopp in terms of, you know, being able to point to trophies. Obviously, they've massively underachieved and they've been bad champions. But if they, 
you know, get quite far in the Champions League or if they and, you know, if, if they get top four as well, then that's something at least for him to point to to say, well, we had a bit of an off season, but we still did X, Y, Z. So I think, yeah, he will be focusing on the Champions League um, henceforward. Now, Matthew, as you just said, you're not quite out the bottom three. There's a little bit of work still to be done. But as we've mentioned on this show before, it's all about momentum now and you have that in abundance. So when you look at that win over Liverpool and the opposition, I know it's kind of like Liverpool with a slight asterisk next to him in terms of their quality. But does Scott Parker say, look, now any game's up for grabs? We can do anything right now. Um, it's interesting you say that since we've got Manchester City coming up next. So I, I don't think I think that might be a little bit too far. I, I sort of get what you're saying that, you know, on, you know, on this day, anyone could beat anyone. And this season has sort of proved that more than more than any other. I, I want to say that, but at the same time, the Fulham that I've come to know and over the course of this season, you just you just never know. Like it, it is the same Fulham that as much as we can put in a great performance, there will be that day where things just don't go right. Like we were, you know, the better team against Crystal Palace and we can only get a nil-nil out of it. For all we know, we may, may, emphasis may, be the better team against Manchester City coming up this weekend. And, you know, we may, because of who Manchester City are, may still come away with a 2 nil loss. And then we've got Leeds coming up after that and Leeds again on their day, you just never know. So, yes, I think there is an element of that, but... I think that would just be a little bit, little bit too hasty, and you know, count chickens before they hatch to some extent. Because with this film side, you just never know what sort of result or performance is going to come next. So what you're kind of saying in a roundabout way, there's a pinch of realism and pragmatism to be coming after that result of let's not get too carried away. You know, obviously we are where we are for a reason. So obviously it's great that you've won against Liverpool, but you know we've got to get ourselves out of this mess, and it might not necessarily be this huge bounce that from you know week on week we're sort of going on a. 10 game unbeaten run between now and the end of the season. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, there's only so much of it you can't, you know, you can control yourself. Like, we can go and beat Man City for all we know, you know, put another great performance. But then Newcastle can go and beat Aston Villa or whatever way the fixtures are. I think they're playing ahead of us, but you get the point. There's only so much that we can control over it. And then if Newcastle somehow bounce back, then we're back to square one. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. You know, there's other forces in all of this. But Max... If it is going to be up for grabs each week, it's going to need Joachim Anderson to play like he did against Sunday. Sorry, against Liverpool on Sunday. And I think really his performance was best signified by that incredible poaching of the ball from Sadio Mane's foot in the dying seconds of the game. Yeah, exactly. It was a super bit of defending. And he's he's definitely been one of the kind of underrated signings. And if he keeps Fulham up, if he helps keep Fulham up, obviously he's not going to do it single-handedly. It'll be the whole team or whole squad. Um, but... If Fulham stay up, he will have been one of the signings of the season because he's obviously come in on on loan. So you know, a lot of a lot of times previously, loan signings have come in maybe to help uh, a relegation fight. You can use the example with Fulham; they had a lot of players on loan. Like the last time they went down two years ago, you know, I think Markovic or maybe he signed on a permanent transfer on a free. Um, you know, Scherler, Babel people like that. And often, you know, it, it's an accusation that, that can be thrown around is that they're, they're not so bothered about the relegation fight because they don't really care. If Fulham go down, whatever, they'll just go back to their parent club, no skin off their nose. But um, I think it's been a real feature of Fulham signings this season that they all look very fully committed to the cause. Um, you know, Ola Aina, that, that applies to him as well. Um, Josh Madger has made a, a, an instant impact as he's come in. But yeah, Anderson has... 
is I think he's only 24. So you know he's not he's not an old guy, but he seems to have a, a very experienced head on on his young shoulders, youngish shoulders. And the fact that Scott Parker has made him captain um, really shows the the kind of level of maturity that he has. And he's been really generally excellent across all the games. So yeah, you're right. It was it was a fantastic intervention um, to, to 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 stop Mane scoring, but in a way to, to to kind of say yeah it was a really great intervention would would be to underplay everything he's done because he's been so good and so consistent and so solid at the back and such a leader kind of uh on, on the pitch in terms of both his defending and and you know the, the example he sets that it, it was just like one in a long line of lots of um lots of things he's done to, to prove that he's a really really classy player and if um Fulham go down I'm sure there'll be a lot of Premier League interest in him and probably will even if he even if he stays up. I imagine Fulham will want to sign him permanently. And Leon must be rubbing their hands, thinking we've got a 20, 30 million player here. Well, as you say, Max, they'll probably have a bidding war as well, though, won't they? Because it's not as simple as just Fulham sort of entering the hat into the ring. I saw many Tottenham fans saying we'll have him if it all goes uh, tits up at the end of the season at Fulham, and I would agree with that. But Max, I'll stay with you because I'm talking about the dying seconds. There was a rather crude foul from Naby Keita and it escapes me on who he did it on. But it was a Fulham breakaway. It could have been a second. He saw a yellow. Should he have seen a red? I'll be perfectly honest. I haven't seen that incident, so I'll pass over to someone who maybe has. Matthew, over to you then, mate. Yeah, you can make... You can make the argument for a red. If it had been given a red, I honestly wouldn't have complained that much. But when you factor in things like the distance to goal... And I think there was one other defender sort of like two yards, two or three yards behind him. So was he really last man? You can make the argument for it, but in, in the grand scheme of things, I wasn't really all that fussed. I was more I was more happy the fact that we got a free kick so we could boot the ball up the other end rather than where they're going to be down to 10 men. So I can see the argument, but I'm not going to make a big fuss over it. Well, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't change the result, does it? You know, had he stayed on the pitch and Liverpool got an equaliser, you know, there'd be all kinds of umbrage. So it is what it is. Let's move on because we spoke quickly about Jurgen Klopp and eggs in baskets and all that. And whether it's Champions League or bust just yet remains to be seen. But if results keep going the way they are, then it might need to be. However, that's always a risky strategy. If it works, you're lauded as the hero. If it doesn't, you could be the villain. There's, of course, a new development in all of this. And that is that Joachim Löw has departed or is announcing his departure as Germany boss at the end of the European Championships or whenever Germany get dumped out. So, Matthew, can you see where I'm going in all this? I can see where you're going with this. And I wonder at what time you wrote your script because Jurgen Klopp said in his press conference this afternoon that he's basically ruling himself out. I wrote it about about midday. So have I been beaten to the punch then? Yeah, you you haven't, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but I, yeah, I, I even okay. We'll play. We'll play this out. Okay. Even if this were the case, that even if you know we hadn't heard the thing, I don't think Jurgen Klopp would be in a position to leave right now. I think there would have been, he would have been in a position to say, oh, you know, after the bad season I've had, I want to be the one, you know, chip on the shoulder. I want to be the one to return Liverpool to you know the greatness that I've got them to over the past past couple of seasons. I want to prove that this season was a blip, you know, and the great Liverpool empire hasn't completely, you know, completely gone away. So I think even if, you know, even if this were the situation, I don't think he would have gone. I don't think he would have gone anyway. So I, I, for, for two reasons, we can rule Jurgen Klopp out of the running, I think. OK, then, Max, let's sort of divert them because my next question was going to be, is it what Klopp needs to sort of move to international football? But let's sort of, assume that the status quo remains at Anfield, 
He's going to want to stay on and revive this ailing force. How much money is in the kitty over the summer to allow him to do that? Yeah, well, that's going to be that's going to be the question because they've obviously they've they've spent fairly big. To be fair, last uh, last summer um, of of 2020, I mean, um, they didn't spend loads. Um, they obviously bought Jota, um, and you know, in January they've been forced to buy a couple of players, but it wasn't up to the massive spending that they'd had previously. Um, you know, in their in his first three four years in the job, he he obviously knew that the squad wasn't up to it. And so he then, you know, brought in Robertson, although Robertson wasn't for much money, Van Dyke, Firmino, Mane, Salah, Vinaldum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, I just wonder whether the fact that this summer, um, last summer, 2020, the fact that he didn't spend very much money, I understand, you know, you can't go chucking around 150 million every single season unless you're PSG or Man City, maybe. Um, so I understand that you, you can't um, you, you can't just throw around silly money every single year forever. But I wonder whether the fact that he didn't, um, for the first time, he was basically happy with his squad, um, having just won the Premier League, and so didn't spend that much money, um, only bought a, a couple of players in and, and for not very much expense compared to his previous years. I wonder whether that has maybe led to a bit of complacency, knowing that players are, that you know, they've got a place in the team, it's secure. Um, they know that they're going to play regularly. They know they're going to be number one. Whereas previously, the kind of regeneration that they, that they've had, excuse me, the kind of regeneration that they've had, they've always, you know, brought in three or four players in the window and freshened things up and provided a bit more competition. And I wonder whether that last window might be might be costing them in terms of, you know, how Ferguson um, would say that um, every three four years, you know, you need to get rid of the old guard, however successful they've been. You need to you need to then replace them, and we saw that with um, Klopp at Dortmund. We saw that with Pochettino at Spurs, and you know you need to you need to freshen things up a little bit. And I wonder whether this summer will be the time to do that. And they think actually, is this a window where we cash in on Salah, or and we um, you know we maybe let one of our one of our big guys go, and then that can help to fund a bit of a a bit of a refresh and a bit of a reset button ahead of the new season. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that maybe one of their top three might be shifted on just to kind of regenerate and get those kind of funds. It's happened before. They sell Coutinho and look what they do with that kind of money. So sometimes there's that kind of sacrificial land, the greater good and all that. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the summer. But we need to move on because we need to mop up a couple of pod derbies. First, we'll go to Sunday's offering between Tottenham and Crystal Palace. Now, Matthew, I think it's official. Gareth Bale is back and he's up and ready for Wales and the Euros. He is. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, not you know, not just on a on a on a Wales perspective, but also on a on a footballing perspective. Because I think we can all agree, Gareth Bale, when he's on the form that he is, is a wonderful player to watch. You know, there is a reason why Real Madrid paid ninety million. I want to say back yeah, in two thousand, whatever the fee was. There's a reason for that because back in that day, he was arguably the third best player in the world behind Ronaldo and Messi. And these, you know, it's not quite the same. But a game like against Crystal Palace just shows you what a great player he is and what and what he offers. So it's not so it's not just a Wales thing; it's a Spurs thing. And also on a Spurs front, let's let's be honest: we're all getting really a bit sick and tired of you know of uh, Jose Mourinho being uh, talked about as being a defensive manager and a dinosaur, and oh, they're not attacking and all that sort of stuff. But now the fact that Gareth Bale has been brought brought into the fold and has offered them a new dimension going forward. 
with that front, you know, three with Son, uh, Son, Kane and Bale, front four, if you want to argue Deli Alley in there as well, has just offered such a brilliant new dynamic to the Spurs team that, you know, really, really has to make us, you know, reassess what we think is capable and what Spurs are capable of this season. Well, we'll talk about those capabilities in a moment. But Max, I just want to ask you from a Palace point of view, where did it all go wrong on Sunday? Because half-time, Roy's got a pretty decent team talk to give out. Benteke, another smash-and-grab goal. But, you know, minutes afterwards, it's back to square one. And then, really, after that, you were further behind. So, why was there a lack of impetus after the interval? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I don't think it was necessarily um, Palace playing particularly badly. I think, actually... The fact that we scored just for half-time. Now, that that is always talked about as it being a good time to score, right? Just before half-time, because the opposition don't have any time to respond. I think that was a really bad time to score for Palace. Because had we gone in at the break 1-0, Hudson can say, look, yeah, we're behind. But it's just one goal, you know, one opportunity. And we'll be able to get back into it like we did against Brighton. Um, you know, keep working hard. And, and you'll be able to get back. But and if and if Jose goes in at one nil, he's tempted to say, well, more of the same lads. And we know that Tottenham previously have gone one up in a match. This actually happened at Selhurst in the reverse fixture. Tottenham went one nil up fairly early, and they just kind of sat back and didn't really play because they were sitting on that sitting on that one goal lead. And then in that in that reverse fixture, Palace then equalised late on. I reckon Palace would have had more of a chance in that match overall had. Um, Spurs gone in at 1-0 because I reckon they would have been tempted to sit back a little bit and, you know, just play the ball around, not much urgency, whatever. Um, but the fact that um, we equalised just before half-time, Jose, I assume, sent a rocket up them and said, look, this isn't good enough. Look at the front three we've got on the pitch. We need to, you know, we need to go and grab this game by the scruff of the neck. And they came out and they did that um, really successfully. And so I think it was probably a bad time to score for Palace because um, possibly Spurs might have been tempted to, to sit on that one goal lead. And, you know, Palace would have been happy to soak up the pressure, let Spurs pass the ball around and then hit them on the break, like we did with Benteke. But, you know, ideally it would have been maybe second half in stoppage time that we would have done it to maybe not give you so much time to respond as you did. Well, do you know what, Max? I'll make you exactly right, because I came to pretty much the same conclusion last night in the sense that you kind of, that goal did... Mourinho's homework at half-time is to say, you know, right, we've got to go out there and let's get a bit more drive about us and really sort of take this game by the scruff of the neck. And that's exactly what we did. And as you say rightly, Max, that if it was 1-0, there's that temptation, the low block, the park in the bus, and you might get the smash and grab from Palace again. So, yeah, I think in a perverse way, your goal made it even better for Tottenham. Now, Matthew, thank you for your question to my Spurs podcast last night. I asked that, and the consensus was that two fronts is actually good for momentum, that one will feed into the other. So if we extend on that and the fact that Tottenham are in the top four race, they're not a favourite, but they're in it, can this head of steam be strong enough to finally get the job done? I think like I, I, the, the, the question I asked just for some, for some context was basically with this Spurs win now puts them firmly back in the race for the top four. Does it? you know, hurt Tottenham because now they've got to fight on two fronts rather than, you know, compare it to Arsenal, say, who their best chance of getting to the Champions League now that the European race is over is just to go all out in the Europa League. And I would I just put the question forward, is it the same is it the same for Spurs? Just go all out in the Europa League. I think momentum does have some element to it, 
But at the same time, you do wonder, you know, we talk about Gareth Bale and how you have to manage his injury. I just do think there will be a there will come a point in the season, you know, depending on how far Spurs have to go. And then you've got to, you know, if they're preparing for the League Cup final as well, there will be some point where Jose Mourinho has to make a decision on do I rest the players, you know, that I need? Do I rest Son, Kane, Bale for a game or do I try and keep the momentum going? And at that point, you are risking one of those players getting injured and screwing up the season. I just, there are elements to it on both sides. I just don't know whether or not I would, I just don't know if I would be comfortable in this sort of situation having two fronts to go on because I think there are risks, again, going either side of it. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point that you make. I think really it's one of those kind of subjects that you can't really get an answer for until you get to about April or at least the either side of um, Easter. So I think a lot of it's going to depend on what Tottenham do in the next sort of three weeks or up until the League Cup final itself. So with that in mind, Max, they're seventh in the table at the moment. Do they need to go on, how should we put this, a monster run, kind of like what we're seeing or what we did see with Man City, for them to get into the top four, if only because they now need to absorb all those bad results from the start of the year? Um, I mean, potentially, yeah. The I think United are, I, I, and maybe it's a, it's a little bit um, strange for me to say, I think United are, are definitely going to get top four when they're only one point ahead of Leicester. And I don't think Leicester are uh, definitely going to get top four. Um I, I suspect if a team does fall out of the top four, it's going to be Leicester because Chelsea just look um, transformed under Tuchel. Their their defence is so, so solid. I think they've kept eight clean sheets in... Six clean sheets in eight, uh, sorry, um, in, in his first eight Premier League games. And, and they just look on such a good run. Um, I suspect that if a team does fall out of the top four, it's going to be Leicester. I think Chelsea are going to stay there and I think United are going to get it. Um, so basically then it's between Liverpool, Tottenham, Everton and West Ham to try and overcome them. Um, and that's difficult because you're fighting them with five teams. Obviously, Liverpool have got, they're in very bad form, but they've got fantastic capability of winning matches and, you know, putting a run together. Everton, I don't think are quite consistent enough yet. Um, judging on, on on last night's result against Chelsea, they, they were a long way off Chelsea. Um, but West Ham have proved that they can beat um, big teams like that. So I, I think it's going to be quite tricky. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it's, it's very easily done. I just wonder whether this um, European run might be splitting your resources a little bit too thinly. Yeah, again, a very good point. I think it all depends really on, like I say, results and how far we can also go in the Europa League. It's all about squad management, really. Everyone's going to have a role to play. And I think that that's going to be the big key. If everyone the collective will say 20, 25 players can do their bit, then there's no reason why Tottenham can't kick on. But, you know, this is Tottenham. They can quite easily collapse as well. So, Matthew, I know you mentioned in our group chat that you felt that Tottenham's fourth goal was your claim for the goal of the season. Do you want to expand on that for the listeners at home? Yeah, I can. I don't know why, but there was just some sort of beauty about the whole thing. I, the... It kind of it kind of reminded me you would that goal would not have looked out of place in the sort of Barcelona side of the 2009 to 2013 sort of era. Just one a ball diagonally over the top and then a ball pulled back and there was just a beauty about it and I can't really describe it. And for some reason, I was when they went to VAR to check it. They say the VAR takes all the emotion out of the game. I was there pleading VAR <laughs> not to rule the goal out. 
because it was just it was just a joy to watch. Now I'm someone that usually prefers a you know a thirty yard a thirty yard thunder strike to a, a neat tippy tappy move, but this one just had a nice. It just looked. It, just go back and look at it. Just look at it. Aesthetically, very pleasing. It is goal of the season. I will. I will defy anyone to tell me that it will be any different. Well, before writing the script, I did actually look at it again. I know exactly what you mean. It's a very sort of, as you say, aesthetically pleasing goal. But Max, of course, there was another option, and that was earlier with Harry Kane's swirling effort from about 25 yards, not quite 30. So if you're a sort of a goal purist, which one are you going for? Uh, Kane's. And I actually mm-hmm. think that there are... And I actually think there are probably twenty better goals scored this season than that um, than that fourth goal. <laughs> we're just different. We're just different football. Uh, different football um, goal purists, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's goals for everyone. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's wind back quickly to Pod Derby Two. They are coming thick and fast, or they've come thick and fast. They're done now. And the major talking point in this one, we all know, really, Matthew, was the incredibly harsh decision to wipe out Fulham's equaliser. Now, is this a case of the law being an ass rather than? than the technology enforcing it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it, it, it's not harsh because it's, it was the correct decision, you know, as much as, as much as it pained me. And, you know, even though I've stuck up for VAR a lot this season, I, and I will continue to, to stick up for it. Again, this is not a VAR thing. This is the rule in a state. And, you know, I know that it, it didn't directly lead to it because, but the fact that IFAB came out the day after and said, you know, the rule is going to change, just sort of confounded that VAR is there to, it's there to show that the rules are bad. The rules are badly, are, are badly written and are, you know, as you say, are an ass. So I, I applaud VAR in a sense. Everyone says it's doing a bad thing. It's officiating horribly, but no, what it's doing is it's exposing just how bad these rules are. And even if it comes at the expense of my, at the expense of my team, I'm just glad there's going to be something done about it. Okay, the Max talking of laws. There's, I guess, a bit of an irony in all of this because a day later or so, IFAB say we're going to change it again. So are we getting to the point where there's too much meddling in the handball rule? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. I can't really get up in arms or support a decision when it comes up on the screen because I don't really know the parameters of whether that's going to be given or not. So I'm kind of just looking at images and I'm not taking them in. So I don't think I'm the only one. And is that a problem? Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem, and uh, it, it's 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 tricky, right? Because I think a lot of football fans would say if something is clearly wrong, for example, the fact that 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 Fulham goal got given as uh, got, got disallowed because it was deemed a handball, I think ninety nine percent of football fans would say that is the wrong call that needs to change, and you know, ideally, it would change. It, it would change straight away or, you know, we, we'd implement it as soon as we can. I think they implemented it from the start of next season rather than immediately this season. Um, but we can't have it both ways in that if we demand change quickly, we can't um, say, oh, things are changing too quickly <laughs> as well, because um, it, it is tough and to keep up with all the rule changes. And, you know, there was that rule change earlier in the season as well based on a couple of handball, I think a Dyer handball and a Joel Ward handball that happened. Um, and they changed it after that. So basically, I think what they need to do is sort out the handball and offside rule and massively clarify what the rule is um, rather than, you know, kind of meddling and tweaking all over the season. And then hopefully all of the problems that we've had this season 
they can just kind of make a decision on what the rule is, make it super, super clear, make it ultra consistent and then stick with it, hopefully for that season. But then, you know, if then we discover in the second week of the new season that there's a big problem with it and there's a loophole that teams are exploiting and bad, bad decisions are being made, then, you know, you'd probably want that to be changed. Um, so it's, it's such a difficult situation because, as you say, you know, the, the regular football fan just has no idea what's happening and no idea whether something's handball or not. I know, it's a farce really, isn't it? I think, hopefully, as you say, Max, we'll get to next season. This will be a kind of rocky road and it'll be a lot smoother and at least the law will be the law and it'll be unchanged for the duration of a campaign. But, you know, if I keep meddling, we could be in any direction in a few months' time. But, Matthew, let's go in another direction in terms of derbies because let's go to Manchester. And United, somewhat surprisingly, come out on top. Now, the thing is, with that result, in the grand scheme of things, it's just a collective shrug of the shoulders because all it's done is delay the inevitable title win that will come for City. It's kind of like, yeah, it's happened, but at worst, the run has come to an end, but it doesn't really stop the end process. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a sort of double mare because I was looking at the <laughs> table. Because I, I was looking at the... I haven't looked at the top of the table for a long time because, as you've said, it's it's a bit of a... I don't need to know what the what the gap is. So the, my initial thought when I thought Man United were going to, oh, this will this will um, be a boost in their hunt for the top four. And I look at it, they're now six points clear. I thought they were back in... I thought they were back in fifth. I thought they dropped off a little bit. So, yeah, it's, all this does is just, again, more or less confirm the Man United will be in the Champions League for, for next season. So, yeah, it's a bit of a yay. The only major thing is is it's kind of put an end to the narrative of, you know, Manchester City and their unbeaten run, uh, their wins in all competitions. And when you really get to that sort of level of, oh, what does it mean? That just shows you, how, as you said, how much of a meh result it is like i've no idea if this has changed the the date that live that mad city can be crowned and if it now means that they can't lift it at anfield or whatever it is and now they have to do it at some bogus home game against sheffield united or whatever it's all thing that that just sort of tells you the narrative around the around the result yeah it's kind of like in the pantheon of derby day results it's kind of you know just a mere footnote footnote in history already but max you know given that win for United, as Matthew's just alluded to, it's going to give their hopes of a top four finish a massive boost. Because I think a lot of people going into that game would have done the maths. Because we're at that point in the season where everyone's doing points projections as to how it will end up. And a lot of people have said, well, United are going to lose that one. But that's already three extra points that they didn't have beforehand. So, as Matthew says, it's looking pretty rosy for the Red Devils. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and I think that they are pretty much nailed on. Don't want to give them, you know, pundits curse or anything. I think they're pretty much nailed on for the top four. And actually, I think I disagree with you uh, both slightly about the importance of the result because they know that United now know that even a rampant City team who have previously gone, what is it, 29 games unbeaten and won 21 games in a row, even a City team that is going to win the Premier League by a long, long, comfortable way, they know that if they turn up on the day, that they've got the capability of beating that team. Um, and obviously the problem with United is not talent, it's consistency. Um, but they know that, that that they've got the tactical framework to beat Man City. There isn't that hoodoo about um, always being in their shadow. They know that they can enter next season's derby with complete fearlessness, knowing that they can stand up to a team in fantastic form who no one has beaten for, you know, however many months. 
and that they can do a job on them. And I think that will be important, not in terms of this season, but in terms of future derbies when maybe potentially with a couple of signings, United will be challenging for the title. Well, the thing is, Matthew, we speak about Man City's impressive run coming to an end, but Man United have got an impressive run of their own. I think it's 22 league matches now away from Old Trafford that they're unbeaten. So I know that doesn't win you any accolades. It's just a nice stat, but it's an impressive run all the same. Yeah, and it sort of touches on what Max said. It, it, it now gives them a little bit of, not, not invincibility, because there will there will be the odd zipper, but they can now go into games thinking that they they can beat they can beat anyone they can take on anyone it's especially going to be important for them you know in the you know as the latter stages of the Europa League like it's ace they've got AC Milan in the next round they have yeah they have so you imagine AC Milan you know arguably one of the favorites for the tournament if they can say you know as you know as Max said if they can beat Manchester City on their turf they can go into AC Milan and think right, we should be able to deal with that. And then, you know, later in the competition, say they have to play Spurs in this situation or Arsenal. It is a, it is a, um, it's, it's, it's a mental thing more than anything. It says, right, on our day, we can take on anyone. So, you know, credit to, as you say, it doesn't win any accolades, but it could lead to accolades in the future. Yeah, I mean, I've been guilty of overlooking Man United in the Europa League. Obviously, they dropped out of the Champions League and they've been parachuted in. But I think they're what? Favourites or second favourites to lift the tournament, and if they are turning out performances like Man City, you think actually, you know, they could be really a, a finalist at the very least, and it could even be a Man United Tottenham final, God forbid. But Max, what's also impressive is the fact that we've spoken at length across this season about United's defensive woes at times. You know, they're not quite as solid as they'd like to be, and that's probably been hampering them from time to time from being an also ran to a genuine challenger. That said, they've kept three clean sheets in a row and all away from home. So, you know, by hook or by crook, Oli is also working out the back four. Yeah, to be honest, I, I think their three of their back four is completely fine and potentially capable of winning a Premier League title. Wambasaka, Shaw and Maguire are, if you have a properly dominant, classy centre-back in the ilk of... Ruben Diaz or Van Dijk, um, kind of knitting the other three of them together that I've just mentioned. I think that's potentially that, that that's a title-winning back four. I, I think the the one weak spot at the moment in the defence is um, obviously that 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 other centre back next to Maguire because Bai is talented but has obviously had his injury issues. Lindelof can be lightweight and a bit inconsistent at times, um, tendency to make mistakes. And then obviously, you know, they haven't had maybe a set and informed goalkeeper behind them super consistently either. Although Henderson is showing signs of being that player um, in, in De Gea's recent absence. So I think that, you know, their defensive capabilities are, are really strong. Shaw and Wan-Bissaka, um, Wan-Bissaka's always been talented. I don't need to talk about him anymore, but, you know, he's just an unbelievable defender. And then Luke Shaw has finally um, seemed to get a real run of consistency together in both his attacking and his defensive play. And he's been one of their best players this season, arguably their best player um, this season. So, yeah, I think three out of the four are completely fine. I think they just need to solve that other centre-back issue. But it's going to be, you know, super difficult because players of the calibre of Van Dijk or Diaz are very thin on the ground and very expensive. And I imagine that they're not going to want to spend... um, you know, 70 million on buying someone when Wan-Bissaka was 50 and Shaw 
back in his day was 30 and Maguire was 80. You know, they they can't be spending that kind of money on every single player in their entire squad. But the rest of the defence is really solid, yeah. Well, you mentioned Luke Shaw. And back in the summer, they signed Alex Tellez from F- FC Porto. And everyone's thinking that's probably the end of, sort of Shaw's role as a first-team player. And now Tellez can't even get a looking, can they? So, I mean, it's good for Shaw. It's good for England. But also, Matthew, in terms of the Manchester derby and the status behind it, Pep has once again been outwitted by Oli. So, not sure if this is just a footballing quirk, but it's interesting to see the Red Devil get the better of the Sky Blue once again. Yeah, it, it is starting to develop into one of those, you know, bogey teams. Like like Arsene Wenger for years always had that Sam Allardyce thing and then, again, couldn't go, couldn't go, to, um, couldn't go to Stoke and get a result. It is just one of these things that, you know, um, if tactically, just he just it's just a blind spot for him. You know, every every manager every manager has it, um, and it appears it could you know Pep Guardiola, or rather Ole Gunnar Solskjaer could just be could just be Pep Guardiola's. It is fascinating, and you know if Manchester United you know want to take that big next step forward into you know challenging properly for the league title, then it could be something that gives them an edge because when those six pointers come around. Uh, next season or in a couple of years' time, depending on how long Solskjaer and Guardiola tend to stay, if he can keep up that 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 jinx, if you will, then it keeps Man United. You know, it'll keep them right in the title race. Yeah, I think this is going to be a rivalry that is going to unfold and develop a bit more across the next couple of years. But also, Max, there is a rivalry for the United goalkeeper shirt. David De Gea has been out for the last week or so due to having a baby. So congratulations to the De Gea family. But Dean Henderson has done his prospects of hanging about in goal, no harm, shall we say, because when you look at that assist for the second goal, that's some incredibly quick thinking that leads to Shaw's run, pass and then shot. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you picked up on that because, um, you know, goalkeepers in the modern day era and maybe purists will say, oh, it's ridiculous. They should just stick to goalkeeping. But the reality is goalkeepers are, you know, an extra defender and potentially um, the first person to start an attack rather than maybe the centre-back doing that. And obviously we know that Edison is an unbelievable passer of the ball and actually a lot of goals City have scored and a lot of chances they create come from Edison's quick thinking and his very accurate um, and long-range distribution. And then, you know, like you said, it would have been easy for Henderson to think, oh, you know, we're at the Etihad, we're against the best team in the country in an unbelievable run of form. Let's just kind of try and maybe hold on to our lead. Let's just take my time with this, wait for everyone to get out, um, whatever. But no, it was really quick thinking and it was clever. And United are obviously a fantastic counter-attacking team and City struggle against those sort of teams. They obviously lost against Tottenham, who hit them on the break really successfully. And then United did did the same kind of thing. But yeah, more generally, I think Henderson has definitely shown he is capable of stepping in for De Gea. He just needs to keep up this consistency now because at a club like Sheffield United, and I don't say this with any disrespect intended, um, you can make the odd mistake. And, you know, and Wilder kept faith in him when he did make the odd mistake last season. But at Man United, the pressure, the expectation, it is different level. And you really cannot afford to have an off week or an off day um, because, you know, it could it could be the Champions League quarterfinal and then Europe's over for another season. Do you know what I mean? So the the, the pressure is that's going to be on him is going to be more intense. The scrutiny will be more intense than at Sheffield United. And he's going to have to learn to deal with that. You know, traditionally, the United goalkeeper's jersey has been a bit of a poison chalice. Um, you think about some of the people who've struggled with that weight. 
on their shoulders. Um, but he's obviously uh, a young kid with a lot of self-belief, and he believes that even though De Gea has been one of De, uh, you know one of United's legends and best performers and best signings, he believes that despite De Gea's standing and status and reputation, that he should be the number one. Henderson thinks he deserves that number one shirt at the age of, what, 23, 24. He believes he should be the number one for United. And that self-belief, he's going to need that uh, if he is going to make that number one shirt his own because he needs to show, basically, that um, that Solskjaer can trust him. De Gea will not be there in five years. Henderson could be, but whether he's going to be a number one or number two, whether uh, Solskjaer has to go out and spend money on a big money on a keeper like Chelsea have, like Liverpool have, like City did um, with Edison, um, whether Solskjaer goes out and spends big money on a keeper is going to be dependent on his performances and performances like against United and against Palace, actually, who looked really confident as well. Um, those kind of performances, he's going to need to keep them up. Um, but you'd have to say the way it's going, he... He, he's playing his way into that United number one shirt and potentially England's number one shirt. Well, they're going to be the next couple of questions. So one each. Matthew, in terms of United's number one shirt, when De Gea comes back from, shall we say, paternity leave, does he go straight back into the team or does Henderson keep his role? It's an interesting one. I don't think we can really keep this quick. I, I, you have to stick with the hot hand, you know, yeah. in, in a sense. And if, if Dean Henderson is doing well... Then what reason do you what reason do you have to drop him? Because you, you don't want to you know disrupt the back. You know you don't want to have this good run at the back. And then all of a sudden change. It. I know it's going back to what you what you had before. But if Dean if Dean Henderson's doing well, why would you drop him for that reason? And also because think just think what that would do to his confidence level. You know if he's doing incredibly well, and then all of a sudden he's out of the team just because David De Gea. For, for 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 legitimate reasons, it's not like anything bad. But to then have his place, you know, just taken away from him just like that would be a little bit harsh on him. So I think I think he sticks with him. Okay, then Max. On that theme, does Henderson need the stretch of games to be England's number one? Is it the fact he is competing for a place and Pickford's more kind of always going to be playing most weeks? I know there was a bit of a change with him and Olsen earlier in the season, but. He's more de facto number one at Everton. Is that the thing that works against Henderson being slotted in for Gareth Southgate? Yeah, 100%. If all of England's keepers are playing every game and are number one for their club, Henderson starts at the Euros and for England going forward, in my opinion. Um, but Pope, obviously, is number one for Burnley, but he's he's actually not been great this season. And I think even the goal he conceded this weekend... Um, or maybe last week, um, where it went kind of threw him at his near post. He hasn't been at the heights of last season. Um, Pickford has been pretty error-prone. He obviously gave away the penalty against Chelsea last night. Um, and he, at the moment, he's kind of in the team based on the fact that no one else has really been challenging him. Pope has did did really, really well last season, but has been a, been a bit off it this year. And Pickford is kind of still being picked despite his middling or shall we say inconsistent club form but if Dean Henderson is playing regularly for United in my opinion if I'm Gareth Southgate I 100% pick Henderson and to be honest even if he's only playing um, half the games then I, I'm, I may be tempted to go for, for Henderson as well um, the trouble is is that if Henderson is only playing like one game a month in Europe or in the domestic cups or whatever then you really can't pick him 
Um, but if he keeps his run in the team, then I would have him as number one at the Euros. Yeah, I would agree. If he plays every week between now and the end of the season, then I think he has to be England's number one. But if it's, if it's too fleeting, then I don't really feel he can make a case. But if we stay on the topic of goalkeepers, because if Henderson's assist on Sunday was the good, then we certainly saw the well, the bad and the ugly against uh, Burnley between uh, Arsenal and the teammates of Shaka and Bert Lino. So Lino cans the ball of Shaka. Chris Wood is the recipient as he scores the easiest goal he'll ever score. Now, Matthew, I've seen two schools of four on this one, but really, who is to blame? Personally, I think it's Bert. I think it's Leno because he put Xhaka in not the greatest situation. And I know part of the discussion, and you know, I watch a lot of AFTV, especially when it's a bad result for them. Just to, to and I know a lot of the discussion around that was, you know, Arsenal play out from the back; they don't hoof the ball long. I I get that. I understand that. But there are situations where it is okay to play the ball long if you think you are in danger or if you, you know, it, you know, once or twice a game, putting the ball long isn't going to greatly damage the psyche and the fabric of Arsenal Football Club. So in that situation, I put it on Bert Leonard because you look at the source of where it all went wrong. and I put it on him for putting Xhaka in not the grace of situations. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a Xhaka stitch up really, wasn't it? You know, like if the ball is better or the ball's just somewhere else, Shaka's not really put in that situation. So it's unfair to criticise the Swiss as much as he has been getting. And almost the German goalkeeper's been absolved of any real blame. But also in the line of fire was Eric Peters in that game for, shall we say, questionable hand movements in the box during the second half. Now, I hate Arsenal with every fibre of my being. There's no doubt about that. But even I know that that's a penalty. Max, have you come to the same conclusion? It is uh, definitely a penalty. It's <laughs> yeah. undoubtedly a penalty. Um, no question about it. I don't need to tell you why. It it just is. Um, and on the Leno and Shaka thing, um, definitely, I think maybe Shaka's history of making mistakes and obviously his history of slight antagonism with the Arsenal fan base has counted against him. Yeah. Also, because maybe it was him who played the actual pass that went in off wood as opposed to Leno. Um, he's maybe getting a bit more of the ire. But at the same time, I. I don't think you can just say, oh, yeah, well, it's a bad pass from Leno. So everything Shaka does from that point on is completely fine. If he had a right foot, he would have used that to, to clear, but he didn't. So he was just kind of waiting and moving and hoping to get the angle for the left foot pass. Um, what he should have done is just smashed it away with his right foot, even if it was a bad clearance, even if it didn't go out. And then you can ask questions later and have recriminations with Leno and and, you know, maybe talk about when to play it out and when not to play it out. But it wasn't a great pass from Leno and it put Shaka in a tricky situation. But he had the opportunity to just smash it clear and he didn't do that. And, you know, they're, they're, they're both at fault for that, in my opinion. But, yeah, Eric Peters um, undoubtedly should have been a penalty, 100%. A thousand percent, you know, a silly number of percent. But anyway, let's jump to Monday night. And, Matthew, I'd like to provide another name for the England rattle, are you ready? Yes, rattle ready. Okay, could Craig Dawson be an outside contender for the bus this summer? Oh, that is a doozy. That is a good... I think Craig Dawson probably falls in the same... Like, like we've, we've talked about a number of um, wide players and how there's a lot of competition for those players. I think we've talked it in the likes of Harvey Barnes and the fact that he's got to get past the likes of um, Sterling, Sancho... Grealish, you could argue Rashford if you want to put him there. I think Craig Dawson is probably in the same boat when you consider Declan Rice can also play centre-back, so he may be putting him out. Harry Maguire, John Stones, 
depending on what formation Southgate wants to play, you can put Carl Walker in there. Um, I I just can't I just can't see a person again. Nothing against Craig Dawson, but I just don't think that I just think there's too many players in front of him to warrant. Again, not saying he not saying he. Not saying he can't, you know. If John Stones' form all of a sudden forms off a cliff, then maybe. But I just, I just think this might be. And and again, I also think the West Ham factor might play into it. And I, I know Declan Rice, but Declan Rice has already established himself in the in the team. Whereas I don't think Craig Dawson in that side is really gonna, you know, he's not a Hollywood name sort of thing to get himself in the media limelight and then all the attention around that. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna say no rattle for Ray Dawson, unfortunately, because I do like him as a player. Okay, no rattle for Craig. I'll stay on the top. I'll stay on the topic though, Max, because let's say Southgate. Well, actually, you will. He'll name a provisional squad of about thirty names. Could you see Dawson in that thirty, or is he even further outside that list? Um, I mean, potentially, but I think just the fact he's got himself on the end of three Aaron Cresswell corners does not an international <laughs> centre back yeah, make, to be honest. Um, he, he, and maybe I'm a little bit biased because he once elbowed um, Palace god Julian Speroni in the head um, and then I think West Brom scored from that and obviously Speroni went off injured um, so I was, I'm still fuming about that even though it was about 15 years ago <laughs> but yeah I, I just I just don't think I just don't think he's um, he, he's going to get in, in the in the squad, I mean, maybe in the in the wider squad, as you say, but definitely not in the in the trimmed twenty three man, twenty four man squad. Um, he he's done pretty well for West Ham um, in a good team, but I think maybe the fact that he scored three or four since he signed is maybe conflating his influence uh, slightly. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to make actually. But their win, West Ham, that keeps them fifth in the table, and they're putting the pressure on Chelsea, who themselves got a big victory earlier that Monday night. And Max, I'll stay with you because I guess it was a night where finally Kai Havertz has shone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Finally, finally. Although I, he was he was a little bit fortunate with uh, he was a little bit fortunate with the goal in that it was before the uh, unfortunate for Everton, fortunate for Chelsea, before the intervention of Godfrey, it was going wide. And if Godfrey weren't there, it would have been a bit of a sitter that he would have missed um, from a really good Alonso uh, cross. And so, yeah, um, he, he was generally really good, though. And he was a bit unlucky later on with that, uh, I think, tight offside goal that um, he uh, that eventually got disallowed for a, a pretty marginal offside. But, yeah, he, he looked good. And he hasn't actually had that many opportunities under Tuchel because we thought it would be really good for the um, for the German players, you know, the likes of Rudiger and Werner and Havertz and maybe their exiles from the team or their bad form in the case of Werner. They, they'd be given a chance to, to play. Um, obviously, Rudiger and Werner have been playing lots and have been mainstays in Tuchel's Chelsea team since he arrived. Havertz hasn't so much, and that's um, <clears throat> excuse me, that's partly because of the attacking um, options that Tuchel has got. Because basically, in the, in that five um, in in that five man defence, and then the two central players and the one striker, that only leaves room for um, two kind of wide attacking midfielders. And like England. If you only have two, you're picking between Pulisic, Ziyech, Havertz, potentially Werner, Mount, Hudson-Odoi, Havertz. You know, <laughs> there's so many to choose from um, that it's difficult to it's difficult to, to give people um, a sustained run of games. But Havertz definitely was really good last night in 
you know, not the easiest game. Everton are, Everton are good. They're a little bit inconsistent at the moment to be a top four challenging team. But they're a good team and Havertz was really good. And, you know, on another day, he could have had a second as well. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for him because you just never like to see a, a young player move to the Premier League and really, really struggle with the pressure and expectation that that brings. But, yeah, goodness me, what, what an attacking force Chelsea are. Look how many options they've got. And it's even now to the extent that Pulisic and Ziyech, who were fantastic um, last season, uh, aren't getting a look in at all, really. Um, but, yeah, they've just got a wealth of options, haven't they? Matthew, from an Everton point of view, I think it's fair to say that was a swing game in terms of the top four race. The swing has gone against them. Inconsistency has always been their bugbear. It might have shown on Monday night, although they were just, you know, out-qualitied by Chelsea. So, is this a massive dent in their top four hopes? It is absolutely. It's if you want to put, if you want to put it down as a as a six pointer, you know, it probably would would be a six pointer. Yeah, we'll take that. Yeah, it's it's major blow. But I think I, I think I've made the point over the you know over the course. I think even even as, if Everton you know would have been aiming for the Champions League, I still think that in the grand scheme of things, I've made and I've made the comparison about Tottenham. I think around this point last year that I think the Europa League is probably better for them because if they went into the Champions League as well, as much as there's you know the money and the prestige and everything going around it, I just think Everton would have just been bounced straight out of the Champions League. Whereas in the Europa League, I think. You know, in the in the grand scheme of things, you know, it is Europe, so it's it's a more attract it is you know more attractive uh, for players to, uh, to attract players, but at the same time, they've actually got a decent chance of winning that competition, uh, or at least doing well in that competition rather than being bounced straight out of the Champions League. So it's a, it's a short term loss, but I think in the grand scheme of things, it will probably work out best for them if they don't end up in, end up in the top four. Okay, it's the quick fire round. We've got about two or three minutes left, so we better get cracking. Matthew, Saturday night, Leicester leave it late. If Brighton were unlucky in the previous week, then they only have themselves to blame for throwing away a positive result at the Amex. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this might just be a case of, you know, relegation nerves starting to kick in now that, you know, Fulham have now the Fulham started to creep up. You know, everyone was talking about Newcastle and the way they're going, but Brighton are pretty much in the same boat. And now that they've got Fulham looking over their shoulder, whereas a couple of weeks ago they may have thought, oh, we're, we're pretty much safe. I think now that's all starting to, you know, crumble down, crumble down upon them. And that was evidenced with, with how they played against, you know, a good Leicester side. Let's give them some credit, but just it's just it was just one of those games where you can see why they're down the bottom and why they're going to continue to be down the bottom for the next couple of weeks. And Max, at the bottom, Sheffield United, they lost to Southampton at home. The Saints ending their dogged run, thankfully for them. But what did you make very quickly of Chris Wilder's recent comments that he says he's working with championship players and he's going to have to clear the decks in the summer? Um, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit bizarre that they kind of turned to saying that. I mean, they are arguably champions, championship level players and they massively overachieved last season with the kind of tactical innovations that obviously people are kind of working out a bit more this year, um, but it it does seem a bit bizarre that he's throwing them under the bus like that. I guess he's thinking um, maybe that his job might be at risk and that he'd rather insinuate or directly state that it's the player's fault, basically, rather than his own. Because if he comes out and says, yeah, these are Premier League level players, I just haven't been good enough as a manager, then you're kind of setting yourself up to be sacked a little bit. But it does seem bizarre. I mean, obviously this season is gone and they're already down. But 
you know, to, to dig them out like that when, you know, sure, they might try and clear the decks and get rid of some of the dead wood and bring in a lot of new players next season. But there are going to be players here this season who are going to be there next season too, you know, 10, 15 at the very least, you would imagine. And to, to dig them out like that, I mean, they haven't been good enough, arguably, but um, to dig them out like that is, is, is still a bit surprising because, you know, you could say that they are just, maybe one of the worst squads in the division and they're just playing to their to the best of their capability which is you know not good enough to to stay in the premier league but at the same time world is probably thinking well you were so good for me last season i've still got you know 95 percent of that team only henderson and o'connell are out really why is why are the rest of you just kind of completely giving up and he's and he's trying to maybe buck them into showing a bit of life and a bit of spark before the end of the season even if they don't stay up so that he can then say to the board, well, you know, there were signs of progress and improvement and fight and determination, um, which he can then take into next season. But for Wilder at Sheffield United, it might be a case of them or me. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch between now and the end of the season, because if they really just go out with a whimper, then it's going to put even more pressure on Wilder if he stays in the job and they have a slow start to their championship life. So it's going to be in the balance to his long-term job prospects. In terms of West Brom, Newcastle and Aston Villa Wolves, nil-nils. We haven't really got time to go through them, so apologies to any supporters of those four clubs, but nothing really happened, let's be honest. And all I've got time now is to thank my two Podsquad members. So, Max, a sterling performance this afternoon. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks very much. See you next week. Cheers, mate. And Matthew, thank you for wearing the captain's armband this week. A cracking effort, and thank you for your time also. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be on as always. Cheers, buddy. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.